Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, June 18th. We begin with a look at the release of the UCP Fair Deal panel results. We get reaction from Rachel Notley, NDP leader of the opposition. Next, we continue our conversation surrounding that Fair Deal panel. We hear from former PC Finance Minister Ted Morton on what he thinks of the initial findings from the report. One of the key recommendations put forward by the panel is the creation of an Alberta-based pension plan in place of the CPP. We speak with an economist on what a provincial plan would look like and how it would benefit residents. The Black Lives Matter movement has started the conversation surrounding racism, and that conversation includes the issue of racism towards Indigenous people in our country. We hear from an Indigenous Calgary man sharing his personal experience living in our city. And finally, the timeline for testing is usually decades long before a working vaccine is ready for a mass rollout. So are we rushing a COVID-19 vaccine? We get the answer from a professor of viral immunology. 811 now in the Fair Deal panel consultation gathering input from 40,000 Albertans. The 25 recommendations were released yesterday. Now, Premier Jason Kenney will be on Danielle's show at 9.30 this morning. But first, we're checking in with the leader of the official opposition, NDP, Rachel Notley. Good morning, Ms. Notley. Good morning. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. What's your overall take when you uh, got a chance to dig in a little deeper on that that uh, report yesterday? Well, I think, you know, the starting point has to be this, is that uh, we've got half a million Albertans who are either out of work or significantly underemployed. And their priority is uh, having a government that's going to find a way to get them back to work, create jobs, and have their backs when it comes to making sure that their kids can get back to school safely and that our health care continues to work. So uh, many of the issues that were identified in this report um, are not issues that the provincial government uh, frankly, has a lot of agency over. And also, they're not top of mind to the vast majority of Albertans. You know, the uh, Jason Kenney will argue, oh, well, you know, the reason we don't have jobs is is um, because of uh, um, Justin Trudeau. Uh, but what we know now, right now, is that uh, the, uh, um, the impact on uh, our economy as a result of the drop in oil prices and COVID-19 requires this government to exercise all of its attention towards supporting Alberta uh, going forward. And this ongoing political fighting, um, it, if there was a solution to be found in this report, by all means, let's do it. But the things within the report that this government can actually act on are things that Albertans don't really care about, and the majority of whom don't, uh, the majority of which Albertans don't really want them to go ahead on, like, for instance, uh, pensions. Well, with pension, uh, you know, that, that that's one of the, the many issues of, of uh, uh, outlined, but a few that we think will uh, obviously garner the attention of Albertans. The other one, the provincial police force instead of the RCMP. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, again, I think this is, uh, I, I think it's situational. I think it's they're, they're talking about this in order to uh, try and look like they're doing something and they're separating uh, Alberta from the rest of the country. But at the end of the day, the federal government, doesn't really care if we have our own provincial police force or if we use the RCMP. Uh, Our own provincial police force will end up likely costing us more and it will require a whole bunch of attention and effort that will be taken away from the work that really needs to be done to diversify the economy and and to get uh, people back to work uh, and to provide the kind of economic security that Albertans are looking for. The other thing that I think is really important to mention is that on the very day they drop a report that 
threatens um, playing around with Albertans' pensions and giving Jason Kenney the ability to uh, get his hands on people's hard-earned pensions. Uh, He also basically acknowledged that they're planning on rolling back the minimum wage. So we know people, the people most hard hit by this uh, pandemic are the lowest income people, the very people that kept working and were the ones we were celebrating as heroes throughout all of this. Now he wants to roll back their wages. So this is not a fair deal. It's a cruel deal. He's focusing on the wrong things. He's not supporting people getting back to work uh, and supporting folks who are striving and struggling to make ends meet couple of texts I wanted to just bring to your attention. One saying the UCP is in the process of hijacking my teacher pension with zero consultation. The other, uh, please ask Rachel about collecting our own taxes. She's very well versed in this matter and the government should listen to her on this one. Uh, well, again, the issue of collecting our own taxes, it's symbolic. There's no money to be saved for the government of Alberta. Frankly, uh, it costs money. Uh, it's not like the, the federal government is somehow, uh, you know, not remitting the taxes that we are owed or anything like that. So it's a symbolic thing that will, that re- will require people's attention and effort. And I would rather see uh, the government's attention and effort uh, on uh, restarting the diversification programs that we had started and they cancelled uh, at a time when we know Alberta has the capacity to diversify their economy or our economy, but it's not going to happen overnight and it's going to require hard work and innovation and thought and attention. And this is something that uh, these guys haven't even begun to, to start work on. Another text here, it says, what Ms. Notley seems to fail to realize is that this report is a summary of how Albertans are feeling, not a made-up report by the UCP. What do you say to that? Well, I, you know, with the greatest of respect, um, it's a summary of, of what they're feeling on some things. But bear in mind, and, and I agree with some of the things that have been identified in those in the report, but the, the items on which uh, Albertans agree, like, for instance, we want to see pipelines get built mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to the, oh, to the uh, to water, Tidewater, I agree, too. All Albertans agree on that. But this report offers us no path, no solutions to get that done. The, what the, the things the report talks about that the government can work on, like CPP, the majority of Albertans do not agree with that. They desperately do not agree with it. And, and uh, so, in fact, the things that this report outlines that Jason Kenney can actually take action on are not things that Albertans agree on. Um, they are things that will distract Albertans from the fact that Jason Kenney has failed to build the economy build pipelines or create jobs. These are the things he ran on. And before COVID-19, we were down 50,000 jobs. We were no further along with respect to the pipeline. And uh, and the economy was shrinking, not growing. So um, this is a distraction method, and it is not going to offer solutions to the real things that Albertans care about right now, the real issues. We thank you so much for your time this morning. You betcha. It's lovely chatting with you. And you as well. That's NDP official opposition leader. That's Rachel Notley. Well, former Cabinet Minister Ted Morton certainly has experience when it comes to looking at finances in our province. Morton was appointed Minister of Finance and Enterprise in 2010 within the Ed Stelmack government. With his thoughts on a few pieces of the newly released Fair Deal panel, we're joined by Ted Morton, Executive in Residence at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and Senior Fellow Energy and Environment at the Manning Foundation. Good morning, Ted. Good morning. Your initial thoughts from what you've seen when it comes to the findings from the Fair Deal panel, what would they be? Uh, I, I was very encouraged. Uh, I think they recognized the fact that uh, the policies that 
uh, we've pursued for the last 30 years have not worked, that uh, Alberta actually is worse off, more vulnerable to uh, predatory policies from Ottawa than we were 30 years ago. And it's time to, to change the game plan, to come up with a plan B. And I like uh, I like their recommendations, and I'm glad to see that the Kenny government is uh, looks like is accepting most of those. Kind of a two-part question for you, Ted. Do you, do you think it's a good decision moving forward with uh, you know a referendum on the equalization issue and then moving forward, taking that to the federal government? And, and what, the uh, second part of that is, what would the cost of a referendum be for this province? I can't give you a dollar figure on the cost. If you, I think the plan is to run it in conjunction with the municipal election in the fall of 2021. So you, again, we've had referendums before. You could go back and see what the addition, and we've done, and we've done them uh, with the Senate elections. The Senate elections, I believe, were always run in conjunction with either municipal elections or federal elections. So it's just a question of um, it's a question of adding just another another question to the ballot. Uh, but in terms of having the referendum, I think it's critical. I mean, uh, the, the, the figures are there. $650 billion since 1960 out net has left Alberta. And lo and behold, you know, $500 billion, so three-quarters of it has gone, gone to Quebec. And uh, even, even in the last uh, decade and a half, it was averaging $20 billion a year. Uh, when I was there, $20 billion was two-thirds of the provincial budget. Now it's about half the provincial budget. And Quebec, you know, we're running deficits now. Quebec is running surpluses. Uh, where's the where's the rationale in this? So I I think it's a I think Albertans have come to the realization that uh, we're not being treated fairly. That what we've done, despite the excellent leadership of Peter Lougheed and uh, Ralph, Ralph Klein and Preston Manning and Stephen Harper, Alberta's worse off today than we were uh, we were 30 years ago. It's time to do something different and. The uh, Alberta Agenda, the Fair Deal initiatives start that process. Ted, thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. We appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. That is Ted Morton, former finance minister in the Alberta government and fellow at School of Public Policy. 908 on the morning news. According to the UCB, UCP government's Fair Deal panel report, fewer than four in ten Albertans like the idea of scrapping the Canada pension plan in favor of an Alberta pension plan. We wanted to dig a little deeper into what an APP might look like. So we're joined this morning by McEwen University economist Rafat Alam. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So let's talk about this because we have a lot of questions already on our text line. And this was a discussion before we found out the results of the Fair Deal panel report. Uh, Ditching the CPP for an APP, how would something like this look? And what would that mean to Canadians, well, Albertans specifically, who've, uh, you know, uh, put money into the CPP for years? Uh, I mean, it will. We are looking into the future, and one of the reasons for the ECP government to do it is because we have in Alberta we have a younger population. So what's happening is that because we have a younger population and the share of 65 plus pension drawing population is lower in Alberta, so we have been paying. Uh, more into the CPP and withdrawing less from the CPP. So that's the argument ECP is using, that if we separate from CPP and set up our own Alberta Pension Fund, then we'll be, per capita, Albertans will be paying less into the pension fund. And because our demographic characteristics is different, so we will be benefiting in that way. 
that we'll be paying a lower amount of uh, pension contribution. So that's the argument. But there are other risks associated with that. And without looking into the long-term risk, it's, uh, and there are many uncertainties. So without considering that, in my opinion, uh, we should be very careful of uh, in terms of uh, introducing APP. And, you know, we hear from a lot of our, our older listeners, Rafat, about the fact they've paid into the CPP for many, many years. So can you speak to or do you know, have you heard anything about what, you know, what would happen to that money? Do you, can, do you draw on that still? Do you lose that money? Any word on how that might look into the future? So, so, so the arrangement, I mean, the arrangement that uh, the government will be looking at is uh, they, when we set up a separate APP, we will get back the money that was contributed into CPP by the uh, previous generation or the older generation. We will get that back into Alberta and that will be set up into APP. So the expectation from the ECP government is that the older generation will be receiving the same amount. They will not be losing anything. It will be the future generation that will be benefiting uh, through setup of the APP. But th- there are uncertainties because it, it, it depends on the negotiation between the Alberta government and the federal mm-hmm. government. And, and it's different from QPP because we need to remember that QPP was set up in the beginning of CPP. So when CPP was set up in 1966, that was the same time when QPP was set up. But this is a different scenario. We are pulling out of CPP after many years. So how the federal government will react, how they will negotiate, how much they will give back, how much portable it will be among other provinces. These are all the uncertain answers we don't know before the negotiations start. Another uh, speculative question, another looking into the future, as, as you uh, mentioned at the beginning of the segment, Rafat, is if I contribute to the APP, if this were to go ahead, and then years from now moved, for example, to the Maritimes or to BC, uh, what could be envisioned to come of my APP at that point? Could I move it with me or would I perhaps lose something like that? Yes. So the uh, the flexibility of QPP is it's fully uh, mobile. So uh, people are moving from Quebec to Ontario and to other provinces and they can switch between QPP and CPP. It's fully mobile uh, and QPP actually always follow the CPP changes. So for example, last year, uh, CPP increased the contribution limit and QPP followed. So we don't know how much APP, again, it depends on the negotiation with the federal government that how transferable APP will be uh, when people migrate between provinces, when people uh, migrate to Alberta or migrate out of Alberta. So again, that depends on the negotiation and and. So with the federal government and uh, I mean, whether uh, like Quebec, uh, the federal government will allow it to be fully mobile. We don't know. We don't know that. So that's the other part of the uncertainty. Rafat, as an economist, are you surprised that there's not much appetite by Albertans to pull out of the CPP and create an APP? 
Uh, yeah, it, it. I mean, because because of all these uncertainties, and we are assuming that Alberta will remain uh, a majority young population in the future. But it depends on how attractive Alberta economy will remain. I'll give you one example. The oil price decreased last time around to 2016. And between 2017 to 19, our interprovincial migration uh, went down. So we are getting a younger population because of this interprovincial migration, because of international migration. So we are trying to bank on or set up APP, assuming that we will have a vibrant economy, we will have a younger population, we'll have a higher income, which will contribute better into the APP. So, but we don't know that what will happen. Our economy is so resource dependent, and so it is very volatile. So the composition of population, our income, our contribution to uh, pension fund, Everything is very uncertain in that way in the future. So that's why Albertans are hesitant. And, and, and the, the, if there are more people involved, it's a pooling of funds. So Alberta's population is way lower than the whole Canadian population, right? So if uh, the larger population contributes into a pension fund, it's less risky. The coverage is better uh, versus if only Alberta's population contributing to the pension fund. So it's a pooled fund option, and that's why uh, Albertans are hesitant. So these are the reasons, the risks, and the the number of people who are contributing will be way lower if we pull out of CPP. Rafat, you talked about it would be a, a you know a lower cost for this pension for an Albertan within it if it were to come to a, a fruition here, and uh, we we get more from it. Uh, but what would it cost to set something like this up? Would do you have any estimate on how much it would cost to get our own APP uh, up and running? Yeah, I, I mean there was uh, some preliminary uh, studies before, and uh, the it's a range. It's it ranges between uh, 35 million to 98 million uh, dollar to set up, and and again that ra- it is a range because it depends on the negotiation with the federal government. So there will be close to on an average about 60 million dollar uh, setup cost for the APP. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Rafat, answering some questions for us and for our listeners. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's Rafat Alam, an economist at Edmonton's McEwen University. 708 on the morning news. Our next guest says Indigenous racism, racism has been and continues to be an issue in Canada and in our city. To hear his personal story, we're joined by Paul Custer, former TV reporter. He's a writer, a stand-up comedian, and a teacher. Good morning to you, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. Uh, again, this Okay, first off, yes. okay, actually, no, I, I'm not doing so well because uh, I'm kicking myself in my butt. Okay. Because uh, when we talked the other day, uh, you gave me the option, uh, you know, we can pre-tape this thing or we can do a live. And I was (laughs) like, you know what? Let's do a live. Now I'm like, maybe we should have taped it because you know what? I could still be sleeping. I, yeah, seven o'clock right comes now. early, doesn't it, Paul? You, this yeah, is on, on you, Paul. On top of that, I heard some really bad 
dad jokes. <laughs> this is so. Come on. Yeah, but does, that goes hand in hand. Bad jokes <laughs> are just, they're, da- they're bad, dad jokes. <laughs> you know, you okay, do you want to hear my bad joke? Uh, because I teach, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when students find out that uh, they hear that Mr. Custer uh, tells stupid jokes at night in clubs, they go, come on, Custer, like, give us something. And I'm like, you know what? No, screw you, kids. Uh, I like my job. <laughs> and and so they they just look at me and they're like, what the hell do you mean? And I go, well, you know, uh, some of my content maybe isn't uh, for this demographic, but I'll give you one one cheap one. And uh, <laughs> they'll go, okay, uh, tell us. <laughs> and I'll go, well, okay. Yeah, no, exactly. But I'll go, uh, two peanuts are walking down the street and one is assaulted. <laughs> that is a, and uh, I stole that off Monty Python, by the way. That it is was the first go-to. Or uh, uh, my dog has no nose. How does he smell? Awful. Oh. <laughs> that is a, a classic dad joke oh, line. Paul. So you've got him yeah, in your repertoire. It's, it's just awful. <laughs> thank so, you. Thank you for adding. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. well, and if people don't know you from your TV days or on stage as a, a comedian, um, you know what? The name Paul Custer is known in, in Calgary. So I want you to tell us a little bit about your story because you're gracious enough to join us, but we can tell you're an outgoing guy. Um, you have no problem speaking in public. <laughs> really? you have no, yeah, you're a very social guy. So I'm wondering, mm. being out and about, do you remember the first time you experienced racism? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I was part of the what they call the '60s scoop. So, for the for your listeners who don't know what it is, uh, basically it was the forced uh, assimilation of Aboriginal kids. Uh, so, when when their mothers gave birth to them, uh, they'd be whisked out uh, a back door and put into foster care or put up for adoption uh, without their consent. And um, uh, my mother, my birth mother, uh, that's what happened to her. And she didn't drink. She didn't do drugs. She didn't do any of that kind of thing. Uh, so she was wondering, okay, why are they taking this my baby out the door? And uh, I was never to be seen again because I, I got put immediately into foster care. And that was just, that's what the scoop is. So if you're not sure uh, about what it is, I, I encourage people to Google it. Uh, it's a horrible uh, uh, legacy, and uh, that that's that's what happened to me. And I grew up in uh, I'm, I'm I'm a Saskatchewan boy, and uh, my uh, reserve is the Beardies and Okamatsis First Nation in Duck Lake, Saskatchewan. Uh, and I was born uh, in the city of Saskatoon, put into foster care immediately. And what they used to do with us. And I'm not making this up. A lot of people don't know this. Um, I was what what I refer to, uh, I, I was the flavor of the month. And the reason why I say that is because they used to uh, put uh, the kids in ads in the newspapers under the adoption section. You're kidding. And, no, I'm not kidding. I was the flavor of the month. I was the feature baby, this chubby little brown baby uh, between the cats and the dogs. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that that's literally uh, how I can. Uh, that's the only way I can put it, and um, that was the unwritten policy uh, back in the day. And uh, so I grew up in a in a. Uh, I'll just say it. It was a white neighborhood, a native kid in Regina, and at that time, uh, there was so much racism toward native people in that city. And I used to uh, play out in the back alley behind uh, behind our house, 
and you could see all the way down because uh, Saskatchewan, uh, pretty Regina specifically, very very flat. Uh, so the the back alleys, I could look to the north and I could see blocks and blocks and blocks all the way down, almost into downtown. And who would be coming uh, down those alleys bottle picking? Well, those homeless native men. And uh, I was a little kid, and those guys were the ones who used to talk to me. And uh, uh, I remember my adopted mom, uh, she would pull me away uh, from them, uh, saying, don't talk to those people. They're, uh, they're, they're dirty. And how old would you have been at that time, Paul? I was a little boy. Um, I spent my, the first year and a half of my life in foster care, and then I got put up for adoption. Now, the the thing I'm, I'm always concerned about, because when people hear that, uh, you know, your mother uh, pulling you away, saying, don't talk to those people, um, a lot of people would jump to conclusions and go, oh, what a horrible person. Well, she was a product of her era. She didn't understand, mm-hmm. and she had her own issues that she was dealing with. Uh, and unfortunately, they sort of got taken out on me as I grew up. And uh, so there's this disconnect because you don't know who you are. Because that's uh, taken away from you. It got taken away from you. Yeah. And uh, here's the irony, guys. When I was a reporter, I, when I stumbled, I stumbled into broadcasting. And it was Noel Wagner. He was the guy who took a chance. Uh, Andrew, I don't know if you remember yep. Noel Wagner. Yep used to be the president of what was then two and seven uh he hires me and the first uh ratings period when i got hired i got uh given the story uh about uh there was a sociologist at uc uh and his focus of study was on inter uh racial adoptions specifically white people adopting native kids and it was at that moment i was actually finding my family, my biological family. Wow. So talk wow. about a mind job. And that was early 90s, Paul, would that be? Early 90s, yeah. yeah. And uh, guess what the findings of his study was? Uh, I, I asked him, I said, what were your conclusions uh, about this issue? And he said, uh, he, said uh, he didn't recommend it, white families adopting Native kids. And I said, why? He said, because it winds up in some sort of uh, family breakdown, and he qualified family breakdown as breakdown in family relationships, uh, suicide, drugs, alcoholism, uh, substance abuse, jail, prostitution, uh, gangs. It, it, it had all these markers, and uh, uh, to the surface, everyone thought that this Paul Custer guy, man, he's cool, what a great guy, but I had... Uh, I was struggling myself with my own demons trying to find out um, who I was. Mm-hmm. And with this uh, trauma that you have, it comes out sideways. Yeah. And uh, I was dealing with that uh, as I was an employee at what is now Global Television. At, at a new job, you come in the door and, and all of a sudden you're story. hit with this impact. Oh, my goodness. It's you know a- what? Uh, I, I heard from so many people afterwards. Like when I started, uh, people at the station, uh, uh, there was a good many people who did not like me uh, because, A, I didn't go to broadcasting school. Mm-hmm. I fell into this. So I didn't have the training. Uh, Andy, so you guys work in, in like the newsroom. I'll just call it the newsroom. So I was hearing comments behind my back all the time that 
this guy jumped the queue. The only reason why he got this job is because he's Indian. And uh, I heard this stuff all the time. And uh, um, and I've had it. Uh, I've had that same experience in the different um, different jobs I've had. Well, listen, uh, we want to keep you a little longer. Can you hold on for two minutes while we take a quick oh, for break? For sure, for sure. Excellent. Uh, more with Paul Custer and his experience coming up in a minute. Right. 719, we're continuing the conversation with former TV reporter, writer, stand-up comedian, and teacher, Paul Custer. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks for hanging with us. Thank you. So, I mean, you know, it had to have, you know, just changed your life dramatically as you're able to sort of look back at being a child, being taken from your family, being put in in the want ads. That's got to affect you. And and has that that sort of continued throughout your life to to sort of always try to find your, your, your 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 own voice, I guess? Yeah, I, I, I've uh, um, I've had battles with uh, addictions, and that is a classic uh, marker uh, of of uh, victims of this whole thing called the scoop. Um, I'll, I'll, and, and we're talking about systemic racism, mm-hmm. okay? So uh, this happened to me at a, a, a very nice hotel down on Stephen Ave, okay? Um, and I was walking with, uh, granted, I had a full hawk. I used to have a full-on mohawk for two years. And uh, at this point, I was growing my hair out, so I still sort of had a mohawk. And I had to use the washroom really bad because I'd had, like, two coffees that morning. <laughs> and I was, like, I'm walking along Stephen Ave, and I passed this hotel, and I'm, like, I'm going to duck in here and use the washroom. And... Uh, there was an escalator that goes upstairs. And so uh, I went and did my thing. And I noticed as I was walking through the lobby onto the escalators up this, uh, 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 to this, uh, uh, the, this washroom, uh, I noticed the security people were starting to follow me like immediately. And uh, I did my business. I come out uh, and I got this, guy come up to me and he goes, excuse me, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, actually, I just used the washroom. I'm, I'm leaving. Are you a member here? Are, 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 you, are you a guest here at this hotel? I'm like, no, I'm just a member of the public. I was surrounded in the lobby, in the lobby. Mm-hmm. For using uh, the washroom. By, uh, suddenly there was all these guys, all these security people, and there was people that were checking in. Uh, and they were, I'll just say there, everyone was non-Indigenous except for me. And I was surrounded uh, by the security team. Uh, they're demanding, okay, what are you doing here? And I was like, holy jeez, you guys. I got two degrees. I work in television, and I'm a professional. And uh, that didn't matter to them. Uh, and, but this is just a, an example of something I faced. I was doing comedy in Saskatoon. Uh, for my buddy Des Reed's uh, Great Plains Comedy Festival. And uh, it was a Saturday afternoon. It was beautiful. Uh, and I was sitting on this bench along the along the river. And suddenly, and I'm, I got my head down because I'm Googling on my phone. And uh, suddenly I noticed there's this shadow <laughs> over top of me. I look up, and this guy was in the sun, so I couldn't even see him. I just saw the silhouette. And I hear this, what do you think you're doing? Well, it was a, it was a cop. And I said, uh, I'm sitting. <laughs> he goes, well, why are you sitting here? And I said, cause it's a nice spot. I was surrounded by, uh, these 
bike cops uh, and this uh, gentleman who was on foot. Simply for sitting. And uh, I hadn't done a thing. And he was demanding to see my ID. And uh, wow. I, I, I gave it to him because I thought, okay, I was really angry, but I thought, you know, the alternative, if I start to um, speak my mind, I was worried Resist. that maybe yeah. I'd get my head kicked in. And that's, a, and that's a, the story that, uh, you know, we uh, have heard time and time again that the issue hey guys, is still... I wasn't doing anything, man. Yep. I wasn't doing anything. Were... He goes, hey, he looks at my ID, and he goes, oh, you're from Calgary. What are you yep. doing here? I go, well, I'm actually, I, yep. I, <laughs> I tell jokes. Yep. And, and that's he, and he goes, Oh, you're a comedian. I go, Yeah. In fact, I think my first five minutes, yeah. uh, I think I'm gonna talk about this. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that one will. Um, yeah, he didn't like that at all. We're gonna we're gonna uh, <laughs> we wanted to hear your story and we appreciate it. Unfortunately we're out of time, Paul, but No, uh, that's okay, man. Uh, I could go on for hours I, and uh, <laughs> it's such a great uh, conversation. I wanna thank you guys for reaching out to me because Andy, I got your message on Facebook. Yep. And I was blown away because uh of everything that's going on. I've been talking to all my friends yep. about this issue and people are now listening and eyes are being opened. So well, that's all I want. The, if, 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 if anything positive comes out of the BLM movement, as far as that conversation, it is moving it in towards uh, indigenous uh, racism. So thank you so much. We, Paul. We, we have to talk. We have to support each other. That's all I got to say. Man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I Paul. love you guys, man. You have a great day. You, you too. too. You take care. That is uh, Paul you. Custer. You might remember his name from uh, Global TV, a reporter in the 90s. He's a writer and a stand-up comedian and a teacher. This is the time we would chat with Danielle Smith. She will kick off her show at 9.30 with Premier Jason Kenney on as her first guest. Danielle would be brought to you by River's Edge Villa Bungalows in Cochrane, featuring breathtaking views of the Rocky Mountains. Well, the Black Lives Matter protests along with Indigenous racism incidences have raised concerns about the RCMP in Canada question is out there is it time to rein in the mounties to open up the discussion we're joined by calgary writer and journalist jillian stewart good morning jillian good morning thanks so much for joining us it's quite timely as we also look at the results of the fair deal panel from yesterday talking about uh, bringing in uh, a provincial police force so what what are you talking about what are you what are you seeing as you do some research into uh, the rcmp in our country well, I think what uh, certainly got me looking at it recently was the incident up in Fort McMurray when uh, the RCM- their RCMP and Chief Alan Adam uh, of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation had a very serious encounter in front of a casino. And it's quite apparent that the RCMP just really assaulted this guy uh, unnecessarily, even though it was a pretty fragile situation. So when you look at the background of the RCMP, particularly in relationship to Indigenous people, they've been enforcers ever since basically Confederation of, um, you know, getting uh, Indigenous people onto reserves and allowing settlers to come in. So there's a long history there with the RCMP and Indigenous people. And that dash cam video that we saw recently really makes you wonder what happens when there is no dash cam, right? When people aren't seeing what's going on between the RCMP and Indigenous people. So it's possible that we actually, because of that history, that we do need maybe some other kind of police force or we need a different kind of um, RCMP. But, well, we do have a body in place, ACERT, the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team. And I'm wondering, in your studies and in, in your research, have they been able to uh, hold the RCMP accountable to at least some point? 
Well, that's certainly true, and I think Alberta is fortunate in the sense that we do have that established independent body to look into incidents like this, right? Because that certainly provides for civilian oversight. It's not, you know, it's not a matter of the RCMP investigating themselves. But I think you also have to take into into uh, account, as I said before, the history of the RCMP and Indigenous people, and see if maybe that that relationship is so broken that we need we need some other kind of solution to that problem, or at least perhaps a you know a, a guiding hand over top of it in terms of being able to to have some recourse for anyone who might go up against the authority of the RCMP itself. Well, that's true, and I think that, you know, the RCMP are the police force, uh, you know, in so many communities across Western Canada and the North, uh, and, in their, in, and they police very remote communities, and often, including Indigenous communities, and often if the uh, RCMP abuse their power, um, those people in those small communities don't have a lot of recourse um, to call them to account. And so I think that's, you know, that's another part of the problem. How do we deal with that? How do we make the, the RCMP more accountable to the communities that they serve? Within your research, within your article in uh, thestar.com, uh, you look at the historical aspect of the RCMP. In fact, you say, in many ways, the RCMP has become a living symbol of cruel colonialism. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, as I, as I said, uh, because of their relationship with Indigenous people that goes back, right, to the beginning of what we now call Canada, uh, because of that relationship and because it was the RCMP, um, you know, with that became the enforcers of moving um, Indigenous people onto reserves. For in, I think I'm not Indigenous, and I don't pretend to speak for Indigenous people, but I think from the point of view of an Indigenous person, there's a history there um, of colonialism, right? Um, that's a negative history, and yet the, it's not just a statue, it's a living, uh, it's a living symbol that in, for many Indigenous people is not exactly a pleasant symbol. It's a question that uh, will no doubt be getting some discussion in this province for sure. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Jillian. Okay, thank you. That's uh, Jillian Stewart, Calgary writer and journalist. Well, it typically takes a, a minimum of 10 years for vaccine testing and clinical research to be completed. So what are the chances that number can be reduced to 12 months? Has the scientific community given us too much hope for that to happen quickly? Let's find out. We're joined by Associate Professor of Viral Immunology, Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph, Byram Bridal. Good morning, Byram. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So, you know, we we keep hearing, oh, it'll be 12 months at least. It's going to be a good year before we get a COVID-19 vaccine. Is that wishful thinking? Uh, in my opinion, it's definitely wishful thinking. I, I know I'm not, I'm not going to say it's impossible, mm-hmm. um, but the probability is very, very low. Within the stats we're reading, uh, as uh, Sue mentioned it off the top, minimum 10 years. What does take so long? to get a vaccine up and running and approved? Yeah, first of all, what's important to understand about that 10-year timeline is that's typically just for the clinical testing phase. So that's Mm -hmm. when the vaccine's actually ready to start being tested in people to make sure it's safe and that it works. Um, It's important to note that uh, the starting point for any vaccine is uh, to test initially in animals, animal models. And that alone could take, uh, you know, two, three, four, sometimes five years. So that's important to keep in mind. And so to put things in perspective, 
that really means that anybody who doesn't currently have a COVID-19 vaccine being tested in human trials, I, I really don't think has a chance at all. And then when it comes to the clinical testing, there's uh, three phases typically that um, a vaccine has to go through. Typically phase one, a phase two trial, and a phase three trial. And normally they're done sequentially. And initially the focus is on safety. And then a phase three trial at the end is making sure the vaccine actually works. And if uh, a vaccine can traverse that pathway, um, then it would typically, and it's been successful, then it'll be approved by a regulatory agency like Health Canada or the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. And, uh, and then still before it can go into people, um, it would then have to be manufactured. And in this case, it has to be manufactured in massive quantities and then uh, distributed and administered to essentially all Canadians. Wow. And Byram, let's focus on the word you mentioned, success. I mean, that's assuming that all things go perfectly and that the vaccine is successful. And that's quite rare in itself, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. It is, uh, the success rate in, of, of uh, therapeutic agents getting through uh, the clinical trial pipeline is low, quite low. So that's exactly it. So um, and research is not uncommon at all for scientists to test their very best ideas and ultimately have them fail. And that's simply because we don't fully understand, you know, human biology. And, um, and so typically it's an iterative process where once something fails, we have to go back to the starting line, figure out why it failed, reconfigure the technology, and then go through the process again. But when it comes to COVID-19, is this a unique situation? Has there been a time in recent history where so many different teams, so many different countries are looking for the same uh, vaccine success at the same time? Uh, yeah, this, this is definitely an unprecedented, unprecedented time. And, uh, and the amount of collaboration and the speed with which uh, funding agencies are responding and providing funds, um, that's an important starting point. It often takes a long time just to get funding, to get the research started as well. So that's been uh, kick-started here by governments providing funding much more rapidly. And definitely there's a lot of groups. Um, unfortunately, the scientists, I'd say there's, there's the scientific community often gets split along two lines when you see things like this happen. There are those that are very willing to collaborate and work together to speed things along. But unfortunately, sometimes the worst comes out uh, in people during this time as well. And some people want to hold on tightly to their own, what we call intellectual property, right? Their own uh, sure. unique vaccine. And um, likely, you know, because in this situation, sometimes a little bit of fame and, and potential promise of fortune comes into play. But nevertheless, this is definitely unprecedented. We have, we've never had so many vaccines for a single disease under simultaneous development. Should we be worried, Byram, that some of them, well, they say they're already in human clinical trials? I mean, that's quick rushing that, isn't it? Uh, well, it depends. So, I mean, we have to keep in mind, people have been working on developing a vaccine for coronavirus uh, ever since the original coronavirus outbreak, the SARS coronavirus. Okay. And then, of course, we had the MERS coronavirus as well. Now, it's important to note that um, despite having 17 years to work on this, uh, as a scientific community, we have failed to develop a clinically approved vaccine for coronavirus, but uh, there have been groups working on that, right? And so they would, uh, so there are groups that would already be very far down that, uh, that research pipeline. Um, but nevertheless, uh, even those that are, are quick to get into human clinical trials, as you noted, uh, a typical clinical trial does take uh, 10 years, even more. It's not unusual for it to take 15 years. Now, with that said, governments, regulatory agencies are working very hard to streamline that process. But I would still say that um, maybe cutting that process down to four to five years would be uh, realistic if everybody works together. But one year, 
is not realistic. And, and while it wasn't a vaccine, we can look back even, you know, less than 70 years ago uh, to the drug uh, thalidomide, and we know how that played out. Uh, could there be issues uh, doing something not fully tested that we could, you know, realize years later after people have taken a, a, a not a 100% tested vaccine? I, so honestly, as a, as, a, as a researcher in the field of vaccine development, um, I, I do have concerns. I, I, that's, that's why we can't rush the process. We, can only, we can't rush it too much. There's a, a minimum amount of time that has to be done. There's, there's a minimal amount of um, uh, scientific rigor that has to be applied to ensure these things are safe. And, it, and it's important to note uh, because, as I mentioned, there, there has been vaccine development underway since the original SARS coronavirus. And uh, what was found, actually, is that some of the technologies, vaccine technologies, that are easiest to get to the clinical trial phase quickest, because they're the easiest to make, um, when those were tested after the SARS coronavirus outbreak, the original one, some of those vaccines and animal models actually turned out to make the disease worse. Mm. So indeed, they were successful in inducing immune responses in animals. But then when those animals were actually exposed to the virus, it actually exacerbated the disease. The, uh, the vaccine caused a re- reaction in the lungs that actually promoted the inflammation. So it's very, very, very important that we take safety into account. And I would argue we have to be very careful because when we start using terms like, uh, you know, warp speed acceleration of this process, even if a vaccine is perfectly safe, I worry that uh, people who would normally be okay with taking vaccines might misinterpret, uh, you know, warp speed process as meaning cutting a lot of corners. And so a lot of people, I I fear, are starting to get a little nervous about uh, the safety perception. I don't know if you can speak to this, Byron, but fame and fortune, you mentioned it earlier. What would that look like potentially? I mean, the name of the person who came up worldwide, this is an issue, obviously. So the name of the person who might come up with a vaccine would obviously get spread around. Is there is there money involved for an individual or a scientist or a group that might come together and figure this out first? Uh, uh, certainly through a company, yes. Uh, yes, for sure. This, uh, the, um, I guess it, well, it depends on the process. interesting that you ask that. So through academia, there is a process that can be followed where it's entirely an academic process. So in other words, done through universities and in conjunction with the government. Um, and in fact, the, what the governments are doing right now, the Canadian government, is with a lot of the collaborations with uh, Canadian um, academic partners, is they are uh, having agreements signed that would ensure that the uh, Canadian public has uh, full access to the vaccine, access to the vaccine first, and um, and that it would be affordable. And um, so that would, where where a lot of the fame and fortune potentially comes in is when companies are involved. And and again, because one of the issues is, of course, their mandate uh, often is to, to their investors mm. and making sure that their investors make money. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Byram. We appreciate it. Hey, you're welcome. That is Byram Bridal, Associate Professor of Viral Immunology, Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph.